last week we kind of only got to the beginning of the conquest of Arabia. So I'm going to kind of move forward from there. And what I decided is it was supposed to be sort of divided into history and teachings of Islam. Um, so what we're going to do is look at the conquests and then we're going to actually go into the teachings about jihad um, because we really just can't cover everything. It would take uh, many hours. So, <clears throat> so we began to talk about how um, things did not go so well for Muhammad in Mecca when um, he began to share these new ideas. Um, and, and again, keeping in mind that everything that we have is um, very much second and or third hand, that um, a lot of the information came, you know, it, it, it's certainly about his life. The first um, biography came, you know, 100 years after. And then all the following ones added a whole bunch more details that you go, well, where were they getting those details at this point? But So this is as best it can be pieced together, and there'll be different versions that include different things, or maybe we'll dispute certain aspects of things. But this is the general um, understanding of probably what happened. <clears throat> so he shares things um, with his fellow Quraysh tribe members, and um, they aren't too happy with his condemnation of their idolatry, of course. They place a trade embargo on um, him and his, his group. And um, so, and, and of course, it's not only his tribe, but there's all the other tribes as well and the, the merchant uh, caravans that are coming through. Um, and all of them are part of this uh, uh, polytheistic culture. And he's, his main message is monotheism, which would seem to be a, a step in the right direction. Um, but he continued to um, gain followers. However, um, as they began to experience persecution, some of the followers fled to other cities, including Yathrib, which later becomes Medina. We mentioned that. Um, by 622, the leaders of the Quraysh tribe and the commercial traders in Mecca had had enough of him, and they were actually plotting to secretly murder him because he did, actually did have enough... Um, uh, um, renown at this point that if they, they felt that if they did it openly, it might cause some civil conflict. So they were going to try and assassinate him, but people learned of this, and so he fled to Medina, where he'd been visiting at various times anyway, but he had to relocate. So some of his followers went with him, and they went to um, what became known as the City of the Prophet. It was Yathrib. Um, I think I have... Uh, we'll come to we'll, we'll see that on a map later. So, um, at the time, this city was a mix of Jewish tribes and various Arab clans, and they made them him welcome in exile. It would seem that for the most part he was welcomed there. Um, some of them even treated him as a hero. Um, certainly, the Jewish tribes, when uh, you know, probably initially thought, well, there's a, a connection here with the uh, monotheism, but it soon became clear that um, it was not, it was a very different form. Um, so during this time, he began to dictate his plans uh, based on these surahs that these revelations he had or, or created, and as well as um, this process he went through of restructuring his followers, the Ummah, into a fighting band or an army whose purpose was to bring <coughs> ultimately um, various regions under the dominion of the Ummah and of Allah and his prophet. 
what began was a systematic cleansing and conquest of the Hejaz, the, the whole Arabian Peninsula, including slaughter of the Jews. As I've mentioned already, the teaching about outward jihad or fighting in the way of Allah began to develop in the 24 surahs that were revealed at Medina. Um, they were the later surahs. As the story goes, despite his rise in status, he, um, Muhammad continued to work hard and live simply, giving generously to the poor and splitting time between the homes of his several wives and many children. In other words, he was a real family man, an all-around nice guy, it would, at least according to tradition, uh, Muslim tradition. He was, at the same time, undeniably a cunning political leader, um, political and military leader, however, who protected and forwarded the interests of this new movement. <clears throat> ruthlessly. So with Medina as his base, over the next decade, he consolidated his political power um, and position as the prophet. Um, and he saw himself as God's mouthpiece, it would seem. In addition to fighting bands of citizens who opposed him, he sent his followers out to raid and pillage the merchant caravans of the pagan Arabs who were passing through, um, or even just... Um, groups of Meccans, uh, he tended to focus uh, much of his raids on Mecca. Um, and of course, raiding of rival tribe, tribes' caravans was a not-so-uncommon practice in the fragmented Arabic culture of the time. A convenient way of uh, financing and feeding your own group was to just take from others, right? Uh, in response, the pagans began guarding their caravans with armed soldiers and full-scale conflicts ensued. <coughs> so, again, the culture was one of tribalism of, of, you know, it was murder wrong? Well, sure, if you murdered your clansmen, but it wasn't so bad if you were murdering someone who you didn't know, right? And so this, this, um, these values that he was bringing, as we'll look at later, were, had certain positive aspects to them. It, it seemed to elevate the culture to some degree, but of course not in the way that the gospel does. It was simply a form of godliness, but without the power of the cross, right? So entire books were written on his military career or have been written at, uh, throughout Islamic history and his devoted followers today treasure the stories of ex his exploits. Three major conflicts with Meccan leadership um, were the battles of Badr, Uhud and Trench in 624, 625 and 627, all part of the context of the Quran's teachings. In 624 AD, the Muslims attacked and defeated a heavily guarded merchant caravan taking many of the pagans captive, and instant, I mentioned this was Battle of Badur, uh, which was the first major battle. And of course his followers risked life and limb in these ventures, and for their willingness to die for his cause, he promised them paradise. <coughs> um, so here you can see um, sort of his very initial kind of conquest as he took uh, control of the area around Medina, um, and the city, and uh, nearby. So this is um, to 624. So his his um, uh, revelations began in 622 and his whole sort of uh, career as prophet and military leader. And so two years later that's where things were at. Um, as Muhammad's power and influence grew, relations with the three Jewish tribes of Medina, who were not interested in converting, began to deteriorate. He solved this by expelling two of the tribes from Medina, the Banu Kainuka and Banu Nadur, and then massacring the remaining tribe who were the Banu Quraiza. Such actions were supported by many teachings in the Quran or in the surahs, um, and so 
the question is kind of, again, a, a chicken and egg, right? So which came first, the suras and then um, those actions which flowed out of them? Or was it um, to justify the actions um, they came? Well, we can't be sure, but at any rate, um, his ideology had shifted from one of um, defensive uh, and survival when they were uh, back in Mecca and were in the minority and were persecuted to um, throwing his weight around as he gained uh, popularity and control. <clears throat> and of course, we can contrast this, and we can't spend too much time on these passages, but with Jesus, the Lamb of God, and his um, uh, deliberate eschewing of any kind of military um, or uh, aggressive or um, show of strength um, when we know that he could have called 10,000 angels, let alone um, said to the people, Let's go, let's fight, let's, let's um, respond to these um, insults and um, persecution with uh, violence. Of course, um, we see the opposite. Um, so we can't go through the scriptures that refer to that, but I'm sure you're all familiar with them. So the conquest of Mecca in 630, when the Meccans failed repeatedly to crush the small but growing new movement, it was only a matter of time until their own ultimate downfall became a certainty. The Muslims expanded their power through alliances as, Muslim, as Muhammad gradually consolidated the Arab tribes under the banner of Islamic monotheism. <clears throat> Meanwhile, the Meccan leadership dwindled and lost influence. In 628, he marched on his hometown of Mecca in Hajj, or pilgrimage. His entourage was denied entrance, but in the Treaty of um, Hudaybiyah, it was agreed that they could return in pilgrimage the following year. So this was sort of an, a, a uh, treaty that was made, which he broke two years later. Uh, when yearning to have Mecca under his power in 630, he led a huge force into Mecca in his first jihad. As it turned out, full-scale war wasn't even necessary. Um, as he and his men stormed through the city, most of its citizens switched their loyalties to him on the spot, either converting to the cause sincerely or merely in fear of his power. He swiftly conquered the city, quelling all opposition with relatively little loss of life. In fact, some of his followers were actually a little bit upset with him that he was quite so merciful um, in how he treated some of the Meccans. But his goal really was not to destroy, but to um, create an empire and to unite the Arab tribes and take his place as the city's and region's political, military, and religious leader. <clears throat> His other goal was to cleanse the Kaaba of idol worship and establish Islamic monotheism as the sole religion of the land. In triumph, he publicly declared at the Kaaba that there was only one God, his name was Allah. Uh, worship of any other God was henceforth forbidden. However, he did apparently permit the tradition of worshiping and kissing the black stone at Kaaba to continue, at least for a time. He declared his followers must face Mecca when they prayed, and no unbeliever should ever set foot in the sacred city, which is a tradition followed to this day. So anyone who gets in there is doing it um, clandestinely and um, at risk of their lives. When the Jews rejected his teachings to them, uh, which were still pagan and blasphemous, uh, and his claims to be their Messiah, they were warned to either convert or die. Um, now, there were different points at which... Um, and there, there will you will see statements saying, well, there was no convert or die going on, um, you know, uh, and of course they're simply not true. Um, but no, it was not that in every case every person was forced to. But there were t points at which this did occur, and so it did occur at this point. And many of them chose death. At least 600 were killed, 600 men, and buried in the park marketplace in Medina, while women and children were taken as slaves. 
and Muhammad took one of the beautiful young Jewish girls as a concubine. All non-Muslims were driven out of Mecca and Medina, and it remains so to this day. Muhammad, by the way, in addition to revelations, experienced visions, and in one dream he was purportedly flown by a winged horse to the uh, Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, and this led to his conviction that Jerusalem itself was a holy city for his people, the Muslims, uh, because of his connection again to Abraham, and in his mind being the, the true line of promise um, <coughs> through Ishmael. Um, so, of course, uh, Jerusalem has been a, a bone of contention between the Muslims and the Jews and Christians ever since. It's difficult to know of such stories whether or not did he um, have this dream inspired by God, Satan, or the work, I mean, Allah, the Satan, or the workings of his own subconscious and relate it to his followers who eventually accurately recorded this item of oral history, or B, he merely claimed to have had such a dream, or C, a later follower merely claimed that Muhammad had related the dream and entered it into the record. So what I'm saying is, when, we give, when I give details like that, we're not sure about some of those kinds of details, right? Did, did, he, did he say he had this dream, or did someone later put those words into his mouth? We can't be sure on some of those details. So, <clears throat> oh, there's, okay, so that's the um, Kaaba in Mecca today. So we don't really see what it looked like originally, but... So, over the next two years, Muhammad expanded his, expanded his territorial control over the area to the north of Medina, sending his armies to wage wars of conquest with the pagan and Jewish tribes, and quickly managed to establish himself as the undisputed leader of all of Central and Western Arabia. He demolished the pagan temples of his defeated enemies and refused to accept their surrender until they agreed to convert to his new religion. He also, by the way, extorted exorbitant protection taxes for many of those Jews and Christians allowed to keep their faiths. So that was the other um, way of dealing things was the jizya, and it was a great way to, um, again, fund your campaigns was um, through tax, right, through a, an enforced tax. Um, <clears throat> Muhammad's final years were characterized by brutal militant rule. Any who opposed or resisted were ex executed. In the last 10 years of his life, he oversaw 65 military raids in Arabia and the surrounding region until at his death all of the Arabian Peninsula was Islamic. He became extremely powerful as both a religious and mil military political leader. Um, ironically, many of, the, many of the converted pagan area Arabs, um, not so thoroughly converted as it would seem, began to superstitiously, superstitiously idolize him, saving relics such as pieces of his hair, his spit, his bathwater, in hopes that these would affect miracles. And yet he never did claim um, that he was a miracle worker. Um, there, there's no, and, and Islam does not claim that he worked miracles. So there were no um, signs and wonders that uh, validated his ministry that um, you could say, well, okay, how, in, how, how do we, how uh, do the people of Islam validate that this was truly a prophet of God based on one testimony, his own, God told me, right? So you either accept that testimony <coughs> or... Although you can also look at the um, uh, wonder of his military conquests and how uh, incredible that was, I suppose you could say, well, there seems to be some kind of power at work here. Um, so he himself claimed uh, to be a mere mortal, um, God's prophet and messenger, but a fallible human being nonetheless. And as already mentioned, he promised his followers 
eternal paradise in the afterlife that they fought for and died for his cause, Allah's cause. And this underpins Islamic Jihad and terrorism to this day, which we'll look at in a moment. Um, so now we're going to try and just skip through. And uh, here's some here's some uh, excerpts from the Quran. Oh, you have who have believed prescribed for you is legal retribution for those murdered. The free for the free, the slave for the slave, the female for the female. So you could say, well, is this just like civil kind of uh, a civil type of thing, like where you know today if if someone takes a life, at least in some places, we say, okay, well, then they should be executed for their um, murder. No, this is talking about that it is legitimate for you if someone kills your wife to kill their wife. If they kill your slave to, or take or steal your slave to steal it back or, you know, it is, it is ultimately the, uh, this is the teaching of eye for an eye, which of course, um, Jesus, um, transformed uh, and in in terms of his people and said love your enemies and um, pray for those who despitefully use you another one is fight in the way of Allah those who fight you but do not transgress and kill them wherever you overtake them and expel them from wherever they have expelled you and fitna is worth, worse than killing what he means is civil unrest it's it's better for us to kill and and, and, and bring things back into an equal, equilibrium in society our society as we expand um, than to have civil strife. So you put down the civil strife. Do not fight them at, or sorry, uh, fight them until there is no more fitna and until worship is acknowledged to be for Allah. Um, so these are obviously from the later Medinan surahs. Um, and of course they contrast with whatever you wish others would do to you, do, do to them and uh, how Jesus when his disciple thought he would defend him even with violence, um, rebuked him. And because his kingdom is not of this world, um, but the Islamic kingdom is very much of this world, even though there's this sense of um, this Islamic paradise that is promised if you die in this world, um, it is a very earthy um, and uh, human uh, ideology. All right, so <clears throat> I'm just going to mention a couple of his wives before we go on uh, to come, before we come back to uh, the teachings of jihad and um, no, actually I should say that. we're, we're going to do a few more things before we get to that. All right, so um, marriage to Aisha. He married his first wife Khadija, uh, which I think I mentioned last week. Well, he was just an ordinary Joe, or as I like to say, my janitor's name's Khadija. She's no, well. Here's my joke. He was just an ordinary Joe, and then I said, or rather, an ordinary Mo. Um, when Mo's, Mohammed's first wife died, he married two new ones, and as he grew in status and power, he took on a series of further wives. Um, he married Aisha at age six and consummated the union when she was just eight or nine. Now, this sounds horrific to us, but it was not that uncommon of the day because he was still a product of his own culture as much as he was transforming his culture. Um... So another marriage worth mentioning is Zainab. Uh, okay, sorry. Um, so he, this was uh, the wife of his adopted son, and one day he knocked on the door, and she came to the door in a slip, and, and he was um, uh, enamored. Um, and when Zaid learned that he was attracted, 
his adopted son learned that he was attracted to his wife. He said, like, well, you can have her. I don't really like her anyway. And he said, like, oh, no, 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 I, I couldn't. And then, you know, after a time, however, they decided to divorce anyway. And um, the, shortly after that, the power of revelation came over Muhammad, and he received the word that Allah had given Zainab to him in a marriage, in marriage even from heaven, so that this was a heavenly decree. Who was he to disobey the voice of God? And it would seem that the long, strong and long-standing tradition and taboo against marrying a daughter-in-law, even of an adopted son, had been nullified in his particular case. And he was free by divine fiat to satisfy his lust for Zainab. Um, and of course, it's not put in the terms that I'm putting it, but that, that it ultimately is consistent with Muslim tradition in the Hadith. So um, furthermore... Um, Zainab became his fifth wife, which is in contravention of the limit of four that's actually recorded in the Quran for Muslims, and he ultimately had a total of ten. Um, and just another quick look at these, this teaching. Divorce is twice, and the interpretation of that means um, you can send your wife away twice, right? You can say, I divorce you, get out. Um, you know, you burnt the dinner again, or whatever it is, I, I'm displeased. Send her out. Um, you can do that twice, then either keep her in an acceptable manner or release her with good treatment. So again, this, this was in some ways, again, uh, improving on the culture, because at the time, a man could just dump her whenever he wanted and say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm displeased, get out, and then take her back when he felt like it, and then dump her again. And So it was saying, you can do that twice, okay, but that's it. The third time, you either decide you're going to make it work. Um, but if you divorce her a third time, then it's not lawful for you to afterward marry her until she's married someone else, and then that marriage is ended, then you can take her again, right? And of course, again, how does this contrast with the glory of God's word and the teachings and the way in which Jesus elevated the status of women and the, the rights of a woman within a marriage and, and the value that God places on um, monogamy and everything. So, um, so okay. Muhammad continued to build the Islamic nation with his sights set on expanding northward. The final revelations he received were focused on obedience to Sharia law and the propriety of fighting in the defense of the Ummah. Two years later, however, he died mysteriously. It's possible that he was poisoned by a rival, and the man who said he often wished, or who often said he wished to die in jihad, died on Aisha's lap in her apartment and was buried there in 632. Tradition says that about age 63, since it was about he was about 40, it would seem, when he began receiving the revelations. He died the founder of a new religion and a way of life for many nations. But the success succession had to be passed on so that the great movement could continue its advance. His um, Okay. Uh, the problem was he did not have a biological son survive him. Uh, kind of makes me think of Henry VIII, right? I mean, here, here this guy has ten wives. I mean, instead of them being successive, he had uh, various ones that, um, together. And um, he did have some sons who did not make it through childhood. Um, he did have daughters survive him. But despite those wives, God's purposes were um, fulfilled in that he did not have... Um, an heir. But that led to a lot of problems for the, the growing movement. Um, we have covered that, so we're just going to skip ahead to 
So there's just an image of um, a very old Quran, I think, I can't remember which century from. Okay, so we're going to go to the violent succession and um, the early caliphates. So we mentioned there was no male heir. Um, some favored his cousin Ali to serve as successor because he was a blood relative. Um, others preferred his father-in-law Abu Bakr and they won out. Um, ultimately, disagreement over his successor, uh, who would be his successor, led to deep division, political and religious schism within the Arabic, Arab Islamic world that endures. So the first three caliphs, according to the Sunnis, the majority of Muslims, the first three Rashidun caliphates, um, or caliphs, sorry, caliphs, were legitimately selected by Muhammad's followers to rule as caliphs. So, um, uh, Rashidun means rightly um, chosen, right? So these are these are legitimate. Is really what that means by the Rashidun caliphs. Um, of course, this is not accepted by um, the Shias, um, who are maybe about ten percent um, in terms of being the two major groups. You've got sort of eighty to ninety percent being Sunni and um, somewhere in the neighborhood of ten percent being Shia or Shiite, and they do not accept these first three caliphs. Uh, they um, because it is not until the fourth caliph, um, in terms of rulers following Muhammad, that Ali uh, takes power and that they consider the first, the first true um, caliph. So um, whatever their, their theological significance for Islam, the rule of the first four caliphs, or caliphs in the 30 years following Muhammad's death was very important in Islamic history. This period was rife with political intrigue, corruption, assassination, civil war, but at the same time, very impressive military conquests. So the first caliph was Abu Bakr, as we mentioned, who was a close friend and father-in-law to uh, Muhammad. He was voted to become, or sorry, he was voted in, in a sense, his youngest daughter, who had married Muhammad at eight or nine, um, I think this was Aisha, and had been widowed at 10, became queen of the realm and helped her father dictate policy. Um, some Arab tribes pulled out of the political coalition in the wake of Muhammad's death. Bakr fought to bring them back into submission, and by 633 he had succeeded in bringing the whole previously fragmented realm of Arabia and the Arabian Hejaz in, under control of the caliphate. And these are just some images of caliphs, um, some artist images. and. Um, all right, the second caliph was uh, Umar, a cousin uh, of Muhammad, who had been appointed or voted successor, but I think this was probably a more distant cousin than, uh, or by marriage. Um, he survived 10 years before he was murdered. Uh, in that time, he managed to turn the mobs of the Quraysh tri tribe and the other Arabian peoples into a fierce fighting force. Um, the Grand March and Great Conquest began as they assaulted first the Byzantine realm and then swept into the center of Ptolemaic Egypt. So now they're moving beyond the Hejaz um, to attack other um, existing empires and kingdoms. In Ex Alexandria, the great library containing the blasphemous manuscripts of Greek philosophers was torched. Muslims won a decisive victory against the Byzantines at the Battle of Yarmouk in 36. And 636, and a major victory against the Sassanians in 37 at the Battle of Al-Qadisya. When he died, the Islamic Caliphate had conquered an empire stretching across 
Persia, Mesopotamia, Palestine, Palestine, and Syria, and as far west as North Africa. And I don't have the, I don't know why I don't have the, we'll, we'll come to the um, maps in a minute. Uthman was next in line, another early convert who'd been a close companion of Bakr. He promoted relatives and friends to positions of power and wealth, engaging in nepotism, and likewise accelerated the pace and force of Muslim conquest, consolidating control all the way across the North African littoral. Despite their success at annexing more and more territory, the people of Islam were plagued by internal strife, spawning a series of civil wars, and Uthman himself grew so corrupt that some of his, own, uh, some of his opponents started a rebellion or a jihad against him, and he was ultimately assassinated by an angry mob in 656. The fourth caliph, as we mentioned, is Ali bin Abu Talib, um, hence the word Taliban. He was connected by blood, adoption, and marriage, um, being Muhammad's cousin and adopted son. Uh, he married also Muhammad's daughter, Fatima. Ali became the next caliph, but was unpopular with many, and rebellion broke out almost immediately. All tried to Ali tried to reverse some of Uthman's corruption and nepotism, and removed many of the governors and officials that uh, he had appointed. Um, Muawiyah, um, a powerful relative of the Uthman, who was governor of Syria, demanded revenge on those who had killed Uthman, um, but Ali tried to compromise and in so doing alienated some of his own followers by negotiating with this dissenter. He was also opposed by Isha, uh, wife of Muhammad, who at this point was um, probably closer to 20. The opposition led to civil war that ended with Ali's assassination in 661. Defeated in battle, he was murdered as he tried to escape into a shrine and thus began the divide between Shiites and um, who were followers of what they considered the rightful caliph in the Sunni majority. Um, what followed that was the Umayyad Caliphate. Um, Muiyah, I cannot say this name, Muiyah, went on to establish the feudal style uh, Umayyad Caliphate, uh, which continued until 750 with its capital in Damascus. Non-Arabs and uh, even those who converted were treated as second-class citizens. So again, if you didn't convert, there was the uh, jizya, the, the poll tax, um, the protection tax, really, um, and just basically the fact that you would have to exist as a second-class citizen. Those who supported all four Rashidun caliphates, as well as the Umayyad caliphate, became the Sunni Muslims, and we already mentioned that. So, um, so then we have the Hussein Rebellion. When Mu Muiyah died in 680, his son Yazid succeeded him. Hussein, uh, grandson of Muhammad and son of Ali bin Abu Talib, initially renounced his rights to the caliphate, but changed his mind later and launched a massive rebellion. Um, Hussein was killed in the Battle of Karbaya, after which his family, including a six-month-old son, was slaughtered, though most of the women and children were taken prisoner. Outrage over his death helped undermine the Umayyad Caliphate's legitimacy, and rebellion was continued by his son, also Hussein, and rebellions continued to occur periodically in the centuries that followed. For example, a dispute over succession led to the Third Muslim Civil War that raged for two years from 744 to 746. Violent civil conflict in Islamic countries such as Afghanistan and Iraq continue as we know to this day. And then uh, there was the Abbasid Rebellion, but I'm going to 
skip that and just mention the stark contrast between the followers of Jesus Christ and how they died and um, what happened with the legacy that Jesus left versus the legacy left by Muhammad. Um, there was incredible expansion, um, but at the same time, terrible uh, military strife and uh, suffering that went on. And so, what we can't do is talk about the Quran itself, because we're going to just skip ahead to talk about the teachings of, and many other things here we're going to skip over, um, get to it. There we go. We need to get to 21. Oh yes. Okay, actually, no, I want to show you those though. I think I might have missed one, but... There. Okay, so here is um, the spread of Islam to 634. So, um, uh, a short time after... Um, Muhammad's death, and 640, and 661. So it, it is pretty incredible what happened in the space of um, 20, 30 years, and 670, and 710, and 733. You can see now already we even have... Um, the Iberian Peninsula, right, by 733, so this is about a hundred years later, after his death. And um, then, yeah, ultimately, of course, here we have um, the Battle at Tours, and um, where they were actually turned back by Charles Martel, but we, again, we can't go into those things, so we're just, I just wanted to show you the, some of the maps. Sorry about this. There we are. Okay. So the Quran and Jihad. So first we're going to look at um, the soft selling of jihad um, from the Muslim perspective, or the, the moderate Muslim, as it would be called, perspective. The word jihad stems from the Arabic root word, which really includes sort of three letters, a J, an H, and a D, um, because, of course, like Hebrew, it didn't initially have the um, vowels. But this word means strive. Other words derived from it include effort, labor, fatigue. Essentially, jihad is an effort to practice religion in the face of oppression and persecution, it is said. The effort may come in fighting the evil in your own heart or in standing up to a dictator. Military effort is included as an option, but as a last resort, and not to spread Islam by the sword, as the stereotype would have one believe. So this is the Muslim, moderate Muslim perspective on what jihad means. Um, the Quran describes jihad as a system of checks and balances, as a way that Allah set up to uh, set up to check one people by means of another. When one person or group transgress, transgresses their limits and violates the rights of others, Muslims have the right and duty to check them and bring them back into line. There are several verses of the Quran that describe jihad in this manner, including, and did not Allah check one set of people by means of another, the earth, if he did not do this, the earth would indeed be full of mischief. Um, Islam, again, this is giving the Muslim perspective, never tolerates unprovoked aggression from its own side. Muslims are commanded in the Quran not to begin hostilities, embark on any act of aggression, violate the rights of others, or harm the innocent. Even hurting or destroying animals or trees is forbidden. 
war is waged only to defend the religious community against oppression and persecution because the Quran says that persecution is worse than slaughter and let there be no hostility except to those who practice oppression. Therefore, if non-Muslims are peaceful or indifferent to Islam, there's no justified reason to declare war on them. So if you don't cause any trouble, we'll leave you alone. Well, <clears throat> again, I wish we had time to look at everything, including the, the story of um, uh, Andalusa. But um, so really, again, the best case scenario for minorities within a Muslim context is if you keep your head down and you keep quiet and you don't make waves and you don't criticize Islam, the Prophet, Allah, um, Muhammad, um, or any of his, his uh, le uh, successive leaders, we're fine. We're not gonna, you know, you're not going to have any problems is, is what the teaching is. So that's, that's sort of the best case scenario and that's what really this is, is saying, that's what underlies what it's saying. We don't, we're not aggressors, we, you know, whether um, with, to people or minorities within our own uh, bounds or in terms of starting wars elsewhere. But history um, would speak very differently of that. Um, and ultimately, this is not an honest view of what is in the Quran. As I said, you've got the surahs that do seem to say, you know, if someone's persecuting you, try to reason with them, try to be nice, try to, you know, try to share the gospel of Islam with your neighbor um, in a reasonable way. But then there are also the surahs that are now sprinkled throughout the Quran. Um, as I said, they're not in order of chronology, but from largest to smallest, but so they ended up sprinkled throughout that are very clear, clearly teaching the opposite of, or, or something very different from what is being presented here. And so what happens is the verses that um, are consistent with this view, this moderate Muslim view, um, those are the ones that will be presented to people outside Islam and even to people in Islam who are Muslims themselves, because many of them have not read the Quran, just like you're going to have Christians who don't really know their Bibles. Um, and so, again, there, uh, there are probably many people um, who are Muslims who grow up and their whole lives um, have never read the whole Quran, and if they do, of course, it is often in translation because they don't know the Arabic in which it um, is legitimate, but or considered legitimate. Um, so again, the Quran describes those people permitted to fight. Um, I don't have that there for you. So they are those who have been expelled from their homes in defiance of the of right for no cause except what they say that they say our Lord is Allah. Did not Allah check one set of people by means of another? Um, there would surely have been pulled down monasteries, churches, synagogues, and mosques in which the name of God is commemorated in abundant measure. Because, again, Islam initially saw itself as being consistent with um, or being uh, a sister religion or brother religion to um, Christianity and uh, Judaism. And so it's, it initially had this attitude that it could ex coexist peacefully and that the Christians and Jews would see the light and would come to Islam and, and realize that this was the final revelation. But when that didn't happen, of course, the tune changed. So these kinds of statements come from earlier on in Muhammad's uh, revelations. Um, and yeah, so it will, so um, Richard Bailey um, has written on Islam and on the stages he sees as um, being the 
um, development of jihad in, uh, uh, how can I put it? There, there are different ways in which um, it, it can occur. Of course, there were times when there was simple conquest. It was, they, they simply went and, and attacked a region and took it over. Um, but there's other ways in which it occurs. And so there are four stages w that he describes. So stage one is when they were, as we know, living as a persecuted minority and as they may be living as a persecuted minority even today in certain areas. Um, so at this point, of course, there's no retaliation and jihad is considered only spiritual. Um, and we've already kind of covered that in terms of what their experience was in Mecca initially. And there's various verses that support that. Have patience with what they say. Leave them with noble dignity. Um, and leave me alone to deal with those in possession of the good things of life who yet deny the truth and bear, them, bear with them for a little while. Um, say, O ye that reject faith, I worship not that which ye worship. To you be your way and to me mine. But leave them in their confused ignorance for a time. Um, so that was the initial stage. Stage two uh, was the initial instructions in Medina, which were defensive fighting was now permitted. Several months after they arrived in Medina, they began looting the Meccan caravans passing through the area. Uh, it's kind of hard to understand how someone who claims to be the prophet could adopt the carnal pagan practice of robbing the caravans of other tribes, calling this striving in the way of God, and how this is non-aggressive. But um, at any rate, it was treated as defensive fighting. We have to do this. We've been exiled. We've been um, persecuted ourselves. So really, um, this is justified retaliation. Um, and so surahs would be, to those against whom war is made, permission is given to fight because they are, have been wronged. Did not God check one set of people by an, another? And those who leave their homes in the cause of God and that are then slain or die, on them God will uh, bestow verily a good provision. One of the many verses that says, don't worry if you fight in the cause of Allah, um, God will reward you and, and will um, requite you. Stage three, revised instruction in Medina. This was defensive fighting commanded. A few months after granting permission to fight in self-defense, the command was given, making war in self-defense a religious obligation. At first, the only enemies in the picture were the unbelievers of the idol-worshipping Quraysh tribes in Mecca, who had first, in a sense, declared war on the Muslims, as I said. Starting with the Battle of Uhud, the hypocrites, or Arabs who had claimed to be Muslims but really did not believe, began to show themselves to be actual enemies, and later the Jews were considered enemies. In the beginning of this stage, the Jews were not considered enemies, however, because Muhammad was still expecting them to accept uh, him as a pro the prophet um, like Moses. Um, so here we have, slay them wherever you catch them and turn them out from where they have turned you out for tumult and oppression or worse and slaughter. Again, it's treated as they've done it to you, now do it back to them that, you know, you're being commanded here. Such is the reward of those who suppress faith. Um, this is what they deserve. If then anyone transgresses the prohibition against you, transgress ye likewise against him. Again, eye for an eye. So stage four, Meccan, uh, Mecca had been conquered. Uh, now offensive war at this stage was commanded to kill, kill pagans and humble Christians and Jews. Um, the Muslims continued to gain strength until the Meccans surrendered in 630. Most of the pagans of the city became Muslims, so Muhammad and his followers were able to take over the city, cleanse the Kaaba, we said. At this point, a new order was given to fit the new situation. By this time, it was evident that the Jews would not accept Muhammad's claim to be a prophet, so the list of enemies now included all unbelievers, including Jews and Christians. 
Now it's no longer just defensive fighting, but aggressive jihad against all believers that is commanded. Um, and since this is the final teaching of the Quran regarding jihad, it is what is still in force today in the sense it is, but these stages still tend to occur. occur. And um, there's another, um, if we get time, uh, description that's been given of the, the more um, subtle jihad that happens of a culture, the cultural jihad, where the initial stage is um, to simply kind of infiltrate and then um, as you consolidate your position, you begin to demand more and more recognition and ultimately begin to impose ideas. And so that's um, done happening already in areas of Europe. They're already in um, this, this um, algorithm kind of gives, uh, I think, five stages and Europe is already in stages three, four, and five of that, right? Um, in terms of, uh, as uh, uh, this gentleman here was mentioning earlier, in London even areas, or in, in England, in the United Kingdom, there are areas, and in Germany, certainly Sweden, um, which is a very high population of Muslims, um, there are um, areas in which Sharia law is in effect already. And, and it's, it's known, it's not sort of just, like there's, at first it's sort of quietly done under the radar, uh, secretly, um, privately within the community where, you know, it would um, obviously uh, you would be in contradiction of the laws of the land. But more and more it's getting to the point where they can boldly do these things um, and really not have to worry about repercussion. Um, so and a very important principle in the um, teachings of Islam is the law of abrogation or substitution. According to the Quran itself, God sometimes substitutes a better verse or passage for one that had been previously given, thus superseding the first one. So, well, that was for that time, but here's, this is now the new teaching, this is the new idea. And how does this sit with the idea that all these surahs that formed the Quran were the eternal word of God, inscribed and enshrined and enthroned in heaven from eternity past, um, and yet there's an admission here that there's not a consistency, that this said this, and now this supersedes that, this abrogates that, this substitutes that. Um, and so then how do Islamic people then interpret, well, am I supposed to apply this one now or, or this one? Right? And of course, self-interest, human self-interest is always going to apply the one that um, gets you what you think you want and what is good for you, or for your people, your power, your um, own interests. Um, so all Muslim scholars believe that God replaced some earlier verses by substituting later verses, but opinion differs as to which verses supersede which other ones. Um, Nevertheless, most agree that Surah 9.5, called the verse of the sword, supersedes most of the previous verses regarding jihad, which are as many as 111 previous verses. So, um, again, there's disagreement, but the, um, for the most part, uh, there's an agreement that this supersedes. But again, we, we're not denying the fact that there are moderate Muslim communities that would tend to emphasize the um, less aggressive verses in terms of jihad. In spite of this general agreement, many today quote the previously 
previous replaced verses in order to validate their perception of Islam being a peaceful religion. Thus, modern liberal Muslim leaders, especially here in the West, are teaching what could be called the Islam of Mecca, with its emphasis on nonviolence and tolerance. At the same time, the Islam of Medina, with its more aggressive totalitarian nature, is what is being practiced and taught by orthodox fundamentalist Muslims in most parts of the Muslim world. Um, to include these, okay. Oh, I didn't include these. So um, here are just a couple of other surahs. Um, None of our revelations do we abrogate or cause to be forgotten, but we substitute something better or similar. Um, what it's saying is, um, again, not consistent with itself, but um, knowest thou not that God hath power over all things? And then God doth blot out or confirm what he pleases with him as the mother of the book. And when we substitute, then later in another surah, when we substitute one revelation for another, and God knows best what he reveals, uh, they say, thou art but a forger. You know, this. wait a second, there were people who then going, wait a second. So you said that, and now you're saying this. But those people, um, they just don't understand. So they just don't get it is what, what it goes on to say. Um, they don't realize how God does things. Um, so the Hadith on Jihad, two to three hundred years after the death of Muhammad, several men devoted their lives to collecting verifiable um, traditions Sahih Hadith, concerning the teachings and actions of Muhammad is witnessed by his followers and passed on through other reliable believers. Among the six most respected Hadith collections, Muhammad bin Ismail bin al-Mughira, al-Bukhari's nine-volume collection is the most respected of all. Ms. Dr. Muhammad uh, Musin Khan, who translated Imam Bukhari's work into English, wrote, it has been unanimously agreed that Imam Bukhari's work is the most authentic of all the other works of Hadith literature. In his careful investigation, Bukhari accepted as authentic only 7,275 7, out of the 300,000 Hadith that he heard. So there was a huge body of, um, of tradition that, um, again, some accept this, some accept that in terms of details about what... Um, Muhammad and his followers did and said in those first 20 to 100 years. Um, and so this guy is sort of the one who's considered conservative and very scholarly and who sifted through all of those and decided these are the 7,000 that are valid, right? So if you take his word, those are the ones that are, and, and in a sense, it's, it's, it's like um, it's been said that you can't say that um, uh, Jesus and Muhammad are um, parallels, but that the Quran itself is parallel to Jesus in the sense Jesus is the word of God, his, you know, his gospels, right? And are what we know Jesus by. And so he's the word of God. And then the Quran, in a sense, is their Jesus. Um, whereas I would compare the Hadith in some ways to um, the rest of the New Testament, in the sense that it, it kind of goes on and says, well, this is all the stuff that happened to the Christians, right? It's sort of the history of, of what happened and, and various ways of interpreting Jesus' teachings. Do you see what I'm saying? So you've got sort of the um, Jesus and the Gospels, and then you've got the New Testament. Well, I would compare, um, in a sense, the Quran sort of takes the place of Jesus in terms of his word 
and then and is is in a sense this sacrosanct worshipped um, holy perfect book in their view, and then the Hadith and Sunnah and other writings um, are a little bit parallel perhaps to um, the other writings of the New Testament and maybe the Church Fathers is how you could compare them. Um, so we're just about out of time here, so I'm going to finish with. Um, Let's read a couple of these hadith. Muhammad said, The person who participates uh, in Allah's cause and nothing compels him to do so except belief in Allah and his apostles, meaning he's doing it because he believes in the cause, will be recompensed by Allah either with reward or booty or will be admitted to paradise. Have I not found it difficult for my followers, then I would not remain behind uh, any Saria going for jihad and I would have loved to be martyred in Allah's cause and then made alive and then martyred and then made alive and then martyred in his cause all over again. Right? So this is what uh, supposedly Muhammad said about how, you know, I just wish I could just die in jihad and come back and die in jihad. I mean, this is, this is really um, a wonderful uh, opportunity to serve God, but he died quietly on Aisha's lap instead. A man came to Muhammad, uh, but this way, this is from the Hadith. So a man came to Muhammad and said, instruct me as to such uh, a deed as equals jihad. He replied, I do not find such a deed. And this was not talking about the jihad of the heart or fighting against um, sin or trying to do all the, the um, keep all the Muslim requirements in order to uh, balance out your bad deeds with good deeds and go to heaven. Allah guarantees he will admit the uh, muhajid um, in his cause into paradise if he's killed. Otherwise, he'll return him to his home safely with rewards and war booty. Um, Muhammad said, my livelihood is under the shade of my spear, and he who disobeys my orders will be humiliated by paying jizya. So those are all the testimony of the hadith about jihad, and there's many others. So Islam's teachings include emphatic exhortations for Muslims to go out and conquer the world, spreading Islam by any means necessary. The impulse to jihad is seeded throughout both the Quran and the Hadith. Islam's plan for the infidels is a sort of, it is ultimately a converter else policy. It's just that there's a process. Um, obviously, if you're not in a position to um, enforce that, you're not going to. But once you are in that position, um, it, I think really you could say it's, it's convert or be quiet or die. Right? So either convert or submit, which is what Islam is all about, and keep your head down, don't, don't speak anything that would disagree, and we'll, we'll let you live as a second class citizen. I'm talking about in, in, ultimately in Muslim states. Um, if you, but you will, in that case, of course, experience um, persecution and um, extortion. Um, or the third option is death. Um, so those who refuse to confess the faith of Islam and submit to the rule of its tyrannical leaders find themselves paying heavy taxes, um, treated as second-class citizens, deprived of rights and freedoms, if there are any rights and freedoms in a, an Islamic state, subjected to imprisonment and torture, or even facing execution. Not surprisingly, Islam was fraught with internal conflict and civil wars because the very nature of this worldview drives men to conflict. Islamic states even constrain, as I say, and abuse their own citizens and enact holy wars of aggression against non-Islamic nations. Like Christianity, Islam ex claims exclusivity of truth and authority and envisions uniting all nations and people of the world in a single, single kingdom. 
but of course in a very different way, in a very different kingdom. The kingdom of Christ, of course, is a, um, has a very different approach to holy war. Christians, As Christians, we are called to show hospitality to strangers, to unbelievers, to those of others' faiths, to do good to them, even when we are just mistreated by them or persecuted, to share with them the good news of the hope and salvation that there is in Christ. So I'll finish there, and uh, if you have any questions or comments...